I'd now like to introduce our speaker, Anna. Hi, I'm Anna, compulsive overeater. Hi, Anna. I am so glad to be here, and thank you for asking me. I really appreciate it. Um, just to get the numbers out of the way, I came into Overeaters Anonymous December 1975. I was 22 years old, 20, 21 years old. And um, it took me six years to get abstinent. So I count my abstinence from February 11, 1981. And I think that may be the most powerful thing I have to say today, which is if you are struggling and scared and feeling like a failure, for me, it really the answer really wasn't to leave. The answer was to hang out and soak it up and do the best I can and not be judgmental, be really kind to myself because it's really hard. I mean, you guys know it. You're here. So... Um, I, my top weight was over 189. I stopped weighing. That was at my sister's wedding. Coincidentally. <laughs> and all the, you know, the heavy emotional stuff that goes with that. My current weight is 130. Um, and then I'll, I'll talk about, you know, more. But I just wanted to sort of give you a bottom, sort of bottom for that. So... I, I think one of the most important things today, right now, is for everybody to take a very deep breath. Because I forget to breathe. And I, you know, I very often walk around in life with this very shallow breath, just at the chest. And with that, with that physical sensation comes this very shallow life. And this feeling of panic and not being present and being a multitasker and all those things. And I am slowly learning that the slower that I breathe and the, and the more that I incorporate meditation in my life, the more time it seems expands in the day. I really seem to have more time. And it's not about multitasking. So just a reminder about how important it is. And when I email my sponsees and when, when I talk to people, I try to close by just saying remember to breathe. Because, and it's not a joke. I mean, I really forget to breathe. I don't know that our culture teaches us that. And the thing that taught me that was the 12th step. Because all these years that I've been in OA, for many, many years, I would hear the word meditation and I would freak. You know, what is that? You know, pretty much all the other stuff I understood, but the meditation was just not part of my culture and it wasn't part of anything I had learned in American culture. Um... And the other thing that's really important for me is that for many years I was sponsored by Doris S., Doris Siegel. And her motto was, go with love. And she used to sign off on the phone, go with love. And I always thought, for the longest time, I thought, that was so corny. That is so corny. It is. But the longer I live, you know, what else is there? Go with love. How lovely. What a wonderful way to be in this world, to go with love. Uh, it's a sim similar to when my mom, many years ago, I was, I was in the corporate world, and I had gone to an affirmation workshop through this corporation, and I had all these goals in life, my life goals, and how much I wanted to make, and where I wanted to be in 10 years, and lists of them, and I called my mom, who isn't like that. She's not in the corporate world. And I said, Mom, what's your goal? And she said, well, I guess it's to be happy. And I just thought that was such a stupid goal. <laughs> what about the other stuff, you know? It's like, you know, and then when you peel it all away, underneath it's to be happy and to be of service. And I guess 
ultimately for me, what I picture myself is a clear glass flute between heaven and earth. And if I fill that flute up with food or complicating things or anger or stuff that's unresolved, dirty it, then I can't be, I can't be useful to people on earth. Because I feel like my job and my role and what makes me happy is to be some kind of usefulness to people on earth. Um, so let me just begin with my story. I, um, I grew up in Santa Monica, California. My mom is a concert pianist and my father was a farmer. Not in Santa Monica. <laughs> um, they met when he was down here for a short time and our our um, land was in Northern California above Sacramento. We had 300 acres, um, and our primary product was walnuts. But she needed to be in Los Angeles to pursue her career, and she was on a quite a professional level. She was in the orchestras and stuff. And he was tied down by the land. So every other month for 28 years, he drove back and forth 500 miles to be with the family and then we there were two girls in my family my older sister who's two years older than me and me uh, we would go up during Easter break and during winter break and during the summer all summer long so for example I didn't really know that Santa Monica was a beach town <laughs> because at the end of the school year bam we packed the car and left you know um, and it was really in many ways it was an idyllic life because I had all this land to roam around in, and um, I, was, I was a kid in dreamland a lot. My sister had her feet on the ground. She was very practical. I was the one who was off in la-la land. And so to be able to just be told at that time in the 50s, I'm 53, to be able to told, you know, see you at lunchtime was just lovely. It was really good for me. Um, I was a compulsive overeater from the moment I was born. It didn't manifest itself in weight, but it did in other compulsive behaviors, always chewing, always wanting things in my mouth. I bite my nails. I don't bite my nails so much anymore, but my mom and I bite our nails. And I remember when I had a boyfriend in high school who was very heavy, and my mom was critical of him and said that he had no willpower, and I just looked at both of our hands where we bit our nails thinking, well, what's the difference? The difference is I could sit on my hands. The difference is we could hide it. And that's what my family was pretty good at doing. We looked great. We seemed like a perfect family. And we weren't. So, um, but I'll go into more of that later. And it's not horrible. It's just what I've learned over the years that has maybe contributed to, to who I am. So, you know, and really the only thing I want to say about that really is that if there were any feelings that weren't pretty, they really weren't welcome in our house. So I would eat over them because I didn't know what to do with them. If there was anger, it was, we were all afraid of it. And so my parents were as afraid of it as anybody. And so we would all run from it. And, and I just remember my father getting mad and storming out because he was afraid. We were all afraid. And what I have learned over the years is I remember going into my therapist many years ago, and, my, and I was very proudly told my therapist, I've been married um, over 25 years, but at the time I was married 13 years, and I said to her, I've been married 13 years and we've never had an argument. And I said that very proudly. And she told me several years later that that concerned her. 
Because here you have two grown adults in one household, and there are bound to be things that need to be discussed, bound to be things that, that are like flint, that, that change how, who we are and what we want to be. And she said to me, if you can't have that, that one feeling, which is on an extreme scale, then how can you have the passion, which is at the other scale? You know, so, so what you have is sort of middle nothing. And that's what we did for 13 years. We were these two really nice kids that danced around each other all the time. We just were trying to make nice, which is what I saw my parents doing. So I compulsively overate as a young child, but it never caught up to me until puberty. And and puberty, I just remember we moved into a house when I was about 13 that was upstairs downstairs and I had said when we were looking for a house I want the small blue bedroom wherever if we have a house and there's a small blue bedroom I want that and they all said okay whatever and we came to this house that has small blue bedroom and that was the one bedroom that was downstairs so my parents said okay you can have it and my mom has been beating herself up for that for years <laughs> because that was where I could hide and where and because I'm a night person and they weren't as soon as they went upstairs and the, their lights were off, I would turn my light on and I would come alive. And I'm a writer, and I became a writer when I was about 13. I had my little typewriter, and I was typing when they were upstairs sleeping, and then I was near the kitchen. So my routine was I was up and I was eating, and I was writing and I was eating, and I was writing these really, you know in the teens, you're, you're passionate and you're heartfelt and everything is extreme and it's, and it's monumental and it's, scary and it's in love and it's against the war and it's everything. It's, it's all big. It's all big. And that's where my big emotions went to. They went to um, writing and they went to eating and they went to masturbation, very honestly. Those are all my drugs. And um, so anything that was unacceptable in my life, any feeling that wasn't kind and happy, I would stuff down. And I began to gain weight as slowly as a teenager. And it wasn't an unacceptable weight. Part of what I say is our illness is it's a disease of perception. Because I thought I was so heavy as a young girl. And I feel bad for that young girl because I look back at pictures and I was adorable. And I had no, I had no notion of that. I look back and I thought, this poor little girl thought she was heavy? What is that? And part of it is our American culture. You know, I look at I have my hand on my stomach. Well, young girls have stomachs, you know. People who are airbrushed in magazines and people who are anorexic maybe don't. Or people who do sit-ups all the time, I don't know. But everybody else has a stomach. Um, so I had this feeling that I was overweight and I felt unacceptable. And, um, and I began, to, and I was eating in secret. And my mom... Being a performer was extremely attractive, and that was very, very important to her. And, and my father was extremely attractive. They looked like movie stars. When she was in her 20s, she gained about 25 pounds for a very brief period of her life, and it was a very frightening place for her because she felt the, her popularity and her, um, her, the, the love that she felt began to to ebb away from her and she began to feel invisible and she vowed that that would never happen to her and so we never had bread in our house we never had bread at dinner and we never ate in between and we didn't have candy in our house 
And when in the, at night when we were going to go to sleep, my sister and I just couldn't go to sleep. And we go, Mom, I want a drink of water. She gives water. Mom, I'm hungry. She'd bring in celery. It's <laughs> my mother. Um, so when I was 18, I graduated from high school, and I copied what my sister did. When she was 18, she had, she had earned money, and she and her two friends went to Europe. And they traveled around Europe and had a great time. And I always wanted to be my sister. The difference is that she had two really close friends, and I always wanted that. I always wanted a best friend. I had a thousand sort of nice friends, you know, who I didn't know very well, but who were good friends of mine or pretty good friends of mine. And so I couldn't, I was looking for those two, I was looking for her, the best friends. I wanted to emulate her, and I couldn't find them. But I told everybody I was going to Europe, and damn it, I was going to go to Europe. And, and when I couldn't find these people to go with me, and I was 18, but inside I was really 12 or something. I went anyways because the way that I ruled my life was how you thought, how I thought you were looking at me. So I had all these eyeballs, which I perceived as looking at me and whatever I promised I had to do because, like, you cared, right? <laughs> like you cared what I was doing in my life. But I thought it was important. I had told everybody I was going to Europe, so I was going to go to Europe. So I went alone, and I, I, I stayed with a family that we had met through some friends, and I traveled alone. I went to hostels, and I was terrified, and my eating kicked into high gear because that was I didn't have much of a coping me- mechanism. We're Jewish, but we weren't practicing, so I didn't have much of a tradition or a religion to support me, and our belief um, was that religion is the opiate of the people and that there is no God, it's just people with a crutch need a God which is not what I've come to believe for myself, but was the operating experience in my family. So I had nothing to lean on and and not a really um, warm feeling within my family where I could go back and get nurtured. So I had an awful lot of pastries in Paris. (laughs) And in my journal, it's all about pastries. You know, especially since breaking out of that household where it was so restricted. But you can't win because when I had my little boy, there was no sugar in this boy's mouth until he was two years old, until it was so obvious that it became too important to him. You know, and then there's got to be some balance in life or it becomes way too important. So luckily we had a babysitter who thought differently than me. (laughs) What can you do? Yeah, i got to turn it over to the God that I've discovered in program. So I came back from um, my trip to Europe, and my father picked me up at the airport, and the first thing he said is, oh, you look fine, because I, all my letters, I'm eating so much, I'm gaining so much, so much weight, I'm, I'm doing these terrible things, I was speeding myself up, and then I immediately moved into the dorms at UC Davis in Northern California. And they serve food, and you could have a lot of it. And you could have bread, and you could have dessert, and you could have extras, and you could have more and more and more. And here I was, this very naive, young 18-year-old, rooming with the sexiest other 18-year-old girl in the whole dorm, the one that all the guys flocked to, right? But none of them were leftovers for me. They were all for her, all for Maureen. And I had so many feelings that I didn't know what to do with. So I ate, and I gained 30 pounds that first year. And in my family, that was so unacceptable. It was so scary to me. And it wasn't even anybody saying anything. It was just, I just knew it. It was 
so frightening to me. And there began my, my quest, you know, for that holy grail, that green button in life. I could just push it, lose the weight, figure out the rules, where's the rule book? Um, and I remember uh, struggling with it, trying different things, going on different diets, going to a counselor on campus, who told me, who had no experience in, in overeating, who said, oh, occasionally I eat a half a gallon of ice cream too. Don't worry about it. I'm thinking, I don't think this is useful. This is a person who isn't, doesn't understand. Um, and then I, I joined a group, sort of a behavior modification group, and we, we wrote down the things that we would do instead of eat, and I wrote, draw with magic markers and take a bubble bath and it helped I mean it really did help to substitute because I needed something and all of these things that I did helped a little bit but they talk about the program having three legs of a stool so that there's the um, spiritual life that you've learned to develop and then there's your dealing with your actual physical needs like like exercise and food and then there's the emotional needs and I in all of these things I tried one of these things, one, I was dealing with one leg of the stool, but not all of them. So another thing I tried is my sister suggested I join the track team. And she was also very loving. She said, look, who knows if you're going to lose weight, but you'll be healthy, you know. So it was a very unique time in, in history and where Title IX in California was very important. In the federal government, in the United States government, was a time when a lot of money was, was brought into the girls' athletic program. And I never would have been invited onto a track team any other time in history because I had no talent, none at all. But I was willing to show up. And they had funding. So there, it was a good match. And I worked out and I did my very best. And it was a wonderful life skill that I still do. Everything I tried helped a little bit. I finally drove to San Francisco one day to go to a hypnotherapist. And I took $75, which at the time was a lot of money. I didn't have it. And I spent eight hours with this guy to, who would hypnotize me and make me well. Again, I was looking for that green, green button. What is that? And all I remember from him, and maybe it did help in a way, because all I remember is driving home and weeping, and he said to say to myself over and over, now is the time, now is the time. Now is the time. And very shortly after that, I found OA. So it's possible that I was so open, I was so willing, I was so looking, and I was so willing to sort of drop all my prejudice that I might have had ordinarily. Um, so my pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, which is in the book, which is that bottom that you hit, came about this way. It was my second year of college. It was December of 1975, my third year of college, December of 1975, second year of college, I remember, third. And I went down, it was um, the winter holidays, and I went down to see my family, and we were invited to three parties on the same day, and I had nothing to wear because I couldn't fit into anything. And my mom said, well, let me take you to my friend Joan's address shop. So we went to this friend, and she was lovely, and I finally found something that I liked. And then she put her arm around me, and she whispered in my ear, and she said, you're not as heavy as your mom says you are. <laughs> okay, so that's the beginning of that day. And somehow that just didn't feel like a compliment, you know. <laughs> so the first party I went to, and they were family. And everybody said, in the nicest way possible, you look different. 
or wow, you changed, or are you taller? And, you know, it's like, I always say that when people go up to a person who's gaining weight and they remind them that they're gaining weight, it's like they think the person doesn't know it when in for, in, for 24 hours, you know, nonstop, 24-7, in my head is this person beating me up and telling me, you're gaining weight, you're gaining weight, and then someone informs me, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so I was just a basket case by the time I left there. And, and but, if I put myself in their shoes, look, if someone, if I hadn't seen someone in six months and they dyed their hair blue, would I pretend they hadn't dyed their, their hair blue? Or would I say, gee, your hair's blue? I mean, it's not someone's fault. They're not being critical. It's just we're human beings. So um, the next party I went to, maybe it was just two parties, my sister leans over as we're driving to the next party and she said, look, our two hosts at this party, Sue and Bob, are 300 pounds each. They're not going to notice 30 pounds. You know, it's not a big deal. Don't even worry about it. And I thought, she's right. They're so much heavier than I, they're not going to notice anything. So I walked up the steps to Sue and Bob's house. I'd never been there before. And Sue opens the door, and she goes, oh, April, hi. It looks like you gained about 30 pounds. <laughs> because who but another compulsive reader would know exactly how much I had gained, right? And I was so stunned and so worn down from myself and my self-flagellation, but also that day and the comments and the woman in the dress shop, that I tore past her, ran down the hallway, found the master bedroom, flung myself on the bed and started weeping and could not stop. I didn't want to see anybody. I didn't want to leave that house. There was no hope. I, I, I feel it in my body now, as I tell you. It was... It was really the bottom of my life, which was there is no hope. I'm going to keep grow. I'm going to keep getting heavier and heavier and heavier. I don't see a way out of this. I've really tried. I've been as, as sincere as I possibly can. Let me just digress here. I'll leave you with that bedroom for a second. I'm just going to go back and tell you a little bit about my spiritual development, and that is. So I was in this Jewish family. We 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 treasured our Judaism. And the way we manifested it was by love of family, lots of family, lots of extended family, by music, by food, by the kind of the richness of the culture. But I knew nothing about Judaism. And I knew, I thought that if you believed in God, that meant you believed in Jesus Christ. I didn't know there was a difference. So I thought, I didn't know that Jews believed in God. It was like so bizarre. How do you not know that? I hadn't a clue. So I, I happily identified myself as, as Jewish because I was, and I am, but without any kind of learning. And I've, I've come to understand that during the Holocaust, when 90% of the spiritual teachers were killed, there was a great big void in American Judaism where the, the spirituality and the meditation on that part was actually severed from religion, and it's slowly coming back. That, that there was this big void so that my mom, who was raised in a very Orthodox Jewish family, could not relate. And when she came to Santa Monica and looked around and looked at the temple and saw the, the, the uh, rabbis talk about one thing in, in temple and then go and eat pork out in a restaurant, she just felt there was so much hypocrisy. It didn't, didn't fit the honesty that she wanted in her life. So, so what I did, because I am a spiritual person from the bottom of my being, and I think sometimes you're just born like that, is I didn't want to separate myself from my family, but I felt this calling, so I made this little thing, this altar in my, my little closet, in my little blue barroom, and I didn't know who the altar was for, I didn't know what I was doing, and because I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings, I thought, well, I'll go back to the 
Roman and Greek gods and goddesses because I was learning that in school. And I chose the goddesses agriculture because that made sense. We were a farm family. So that Ceres, C-E-R-E-S. And I worshipped Ceres. And I had a little um, thing of wheat that I put on her altar and I wrote poems to her. And I didn't know what it was, but there was a, it was a hunger for me for something, something. So now we're back. I'm, I'm 21 and a half years old, and I'm on that bed at the party, sobbing, completely hopeless. The pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, P-A-I-D. That's how I remember it. <clears throat> and um, Sue, who had been to OA, but it wasn't for her. She wasn't able to get it. She was one of those smart people, you know, and sometimes I don't think smart is an advantage in program. I really feel like, because I'm like a B student, you know, I'm a good student. I feel okay. I can get A's, but that's because people like me. But I'm, but I'm not so incredibly smart that I can outthink it. I think that's a disadvantage. But she knew enough that she thought it might help me, so she told this girl at her party to go in and talk to me because the girl had been in OA. Is it? It was in OA. Now, the wonderful serendipity of that moment for me was that I knew this girl, and I knew her just briefly, and I'd met her the year before, and she had been 90 pounds heavier. So her walking into the room was this gift. I didn't know who she was at first. She had to remind me who she was. And she was my angel, although Sue was actually my angel. Sue was the one who sent her. And then, of course, God told Sue to do it. So, <laughs> you know, it's all, all the thing. So this girl walks into the... And she's older than me. I was like 21. She was maybe 24. She was lovely, beautiful to look at, which, of course, why wouldn't you want to be like that? She sat on the bed, and she read me from that pamphlet that talked about, do you eat when, you know, you hide your eating? Do you go to parties in order, you know, for the food? Do you eat wonderfully in front of people, and then later you raid the refrigerator? All those things. All of those meant so much to me. I remember um, I was, uh, I don't remember if this was before or after I met her, but I was a roommate in, a, um, in college with two other girls. And, you know, it's the classic story of going and raiding someone else's food and then at midnight trying to go replace it. And I ate a lot of her ice cream and they didn't have the right brand. <laughs> you know, and the, it's not, it wasn't, I wasn't, didn't feel bad that I'd eaten it. I felt bad that I would be discovered. Mm-hmm. It was that, that you would know my ugly place, that I had snuck, that I was this icky person who had snuck. It wasn't any more conscious than that. So, so this woman reads me from the pamphlet all these things that I identify with, and, and I just thought, I'm not alone. I am not alone. This was so important because there was so much shame associated with compulsive overeating and the way I looked and was looking and getting heavier by the day. And it wasn't even, I could live with the fact that I was maybe plump, but what frightened the hell out of me was that every day I was gaining another pound. It was, it was I could look into the future and I, I couldn't see any end to it. It wasn't like it was there was a period at the end of it. So she took me to my first OA meeting in Los Angeles. She was here for a vacation. She lived in New York. And we found um, the meeting at Crescent Heights um, at that little triangle. And people smoked. It was so such a smoke-filled room. 
And here are the two things that kept me at the... I mean, we are so lucky, you guys. We are so lucky in this new era. People don't smoke, and you can walk in, and you're not allergic, and you're not put off. But the two things that kept me... One thing that put me off was they talked a lot about God, and it was just such a foreign thing, and it scared me. And I also felt like... Did, what did they want from me? Were they going to take advantage of me? Was there someone else taking money based on my unhappiness? But the two things that kept me coming back was, one, they didn't. They specifically said, we asked that newcomers not give. So I didn't have to give any money. And that impressed me a lot. I felt like they really didn't need my money. They really were here for me. And the second thing that was very important to me was the guy who was the speaker had lost 100 pounds and kept it off for 10 years. Because I had lost weight and then put it back on and lost it and put it back on. And it was always more that I had, had to lose and more. So it wasn't that I couldn't lose weight. It was that I didn't know how to live life without running to the refrigerator. So I continued to go to Overeaters Anonymous when I got back to college. I went back to, to UC Davis um, that, new, that new year. And they talk about going to any length in program. And my going to any length was that as a college kid, I basically lived on campus and in the little community where the campus was. But I, the only OA meeting at the time was in Sacramento. And that meant that was like a 20, 30-minute drive. And I didn't drive the freeways much. And I didn't leave my little community. And every week I drove to Sacramento and went to a meeting and drove and went to a meeting. And I did that um, until I graduated. And I had a a sponsor who led me through the steps. Well, no, I take that back. I had a sponsor who told me how to eat, and I ate that way. Didn't, know, didn't really hear the steps. I think my sponsor probably tried to tell them to me, but I didn't hear them. Um, they had two food plans at the time, gray sheet and orange sheet, and I chose the one without bread because that was what my mom did, right? So that must be the one that was the dieter one. <laughs> but on that sheet... It never says this, but on this sheet, I swear, in big letters, typed in with everything else, I swear it said, every night you get one glass, one eight-ounce glass of milk. Now, it never said that. And so I don't know where I got this. Maybe God thought he'd bring me down or easy, right? So every night I made this concoction with vanilla and sweet sweetener and, and with ice, and I made this, like, vanilla milkshake thing out of a glass of milk, which tided me over until one day I looked at the sheet and it didn't say it anywhere. I don't know where I came up with that. Now, here's the thing. It's the steps, you guys. It's in the steps. And we know that, but I didn't know that. So the first foul wind that... So I lost my weight. I was looking great. I was committing my food. I had no concept of what the program was about. And it could have been anything that happened. As it turned out, my father died suddenly. This wonderful dear man that I didn't have a lot of communication with, who, who I revered because he was gone a lot, died suddenly of a heart attack. And I was very aware that if I broke my abstinence, people would understand. If I did it right then, if I waited... I wouldn't have that window of understanding. So I went out with a vengeance. But, okay, so there was part of me intellectually that was saying, if I break Jefferson's now, they'll understand. But there was another part that I didn't get, which was I was in so much pain, I couldn't have tolerated that much pain. And I needed my drug to anesthetize this pain. And I needed it for a long time, but I never left program. So he died in June of 76. I joined in December of 75. He died in June of 76. And I 
did as many things as I possibly could till February 11, 1981. I, I had sponsors. I wrote inventories. Um, and I'm going to just take you through the steps as I understand them. Let me just say one thing because I just want to be careful about time, which is I need help in working the steps, and I need help in using the tools. So what I do is I find a way to structure it in my life. And one way I found to do that is I, I'm, I'm a great person to start meetings. I like to start to, to found meetings. So, for example, when I was going, um, at one point in, in OA, I was going to a meeting a day, and I worked in downtown Los Angeles, and that was very hard to do. So I started a lunchtime meeting just so that that was one meeting that was out of my way, and, and that was great, and I went to that for many years. But when I moved down to Manhattan Beach, California, 12 years ago, I needed a meeting that was within walking distance. And there wasn't one, so I started it. And since I started it, and I could be God of it, I got to, I got to figure out the format. And the one thing is I only wanted an hour meeting. Let's just get program and leave, you know. <laughs> Do this fast. So then I wanted to work as many of the tools as possible in it, right? So um, in this meeting, we have, we read a lot of the readings. And then we have a person who talks for five minutes, so there's your speaker. And then we all write for five minutes silently. So there's your writing. There's your tool of writing. And then we pitch for five, for three minutes. And afterwards, after the meeting is over, we meditate. Those of us who want to stay, stay and meditate. So right there on Friday, I got lots of the tools covered. You know, like, I may not do a lot of them the rest of the week, but I got them on Friday. So, so here's how I work the steps. We admitted we were powerless over food, over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. My abstinence has evolved. It started out being gray sheet and, you know, nothing, three meals a day, nothing in between. And I did that for um, many years up and down. I tried different things. And then on February 11, 1981, I met a woman who looked at me and she said, you need a sponsor. And I, she said, do you want me to sponsor you? And she was known to be one of those little Hitlers. So I said, I thought I said no. But what came out of my mouth was yes. And that was Catherine, Catherine W., who is just amazing. And she was sponsored, she was one of, she was sponsored by um, a woman who brought the HAL program to Los Angeles. So she was, it was one of the early HAL programs. And it was a very good beginning for me. Now, how is very strict, weighed and measured, lots of rules, things that might send other people running to Alaska and gain weight. But because I had been in program for so long and had failed in so many other ways, I was ready. I was really ripe for it. Had someone suggested that, you know, a couple years previously, I would have looked at them and thought they were nuts. But I was just so ready for it. So the requirements were that I had to go to a meeting every single day. If I was late, it did not count. And, of course, in Los Angeles, which Roseanne started OA, we had a lot of choices at that time. So you really could get to a meeting a day. Um, I had to call. I had to go in the meeting. I had to go up to three people and get their phone numbers, and I could not get them from a written list. I had to go up and get their phone numbers, which was great because it had nothing to do with the phone numbers. It had to do with going up to the people, of course. Um, I had to write for 15 minutes a day. I had to call her at 6 o'clock in the morning, and if I called at 6.01, she did not answer. And it was all about just learning. It was like you're in the Army, kid. You know, this is boot camp. I had to weigh and measure my food. And I was just had a new job in the corporate world, and I was going to be um, 
I was going to be flown up to San Francisco and I was going to have a week of meetings. And here I was weighing and measuring my food. I was very new at it. And, and there was no, get, I mean, there was no slip sliding in this, which is what I do very well. I, I do almost. So what I did, you know, based on the experience of other people who were doing this, is I called to the hotel ahead of time and I explained that I needed to weigh and measure my food and before they served the banquet meals every night, could I come in with my scale and my cup? And I talked to the, and they, they were happy to accommodate me. And in my clothes, with my new corporate suit, I had canned green beans, you know. I brought things that if I felt that they might not have them, I could do them. And every day, someone from that, from that area picked me up and took me to a meeting. I mean, so I was able to do it no matter what. Now, the advantage I have that a lot of people don't have is I was single. That's huge. I didn't have a family. I, it could be all about me and my recovery. And that's huge. And I... As a sponsor today, I can't always ask that of someone who has three children and, you know, and a husband and, and is working um, because their experience would be so different than mine. So when we admit we were powerless over food, that our lives become unmanageable, I had to really give all of that up. Now, my experience, I did that for many years, and then I evolved into um, three meals a day and nothing in between. And then when I got pregnant, that didn't work. I wasn't, it didn't work for me to only have three meals a day. So my bottom line since my son is 18, so the last 18 years, is I have no sugar in my life. And if sugar or corn syrup or anything that seems iffy to me is listed on the ingredients label, it has to be lifted fifth or below. Um, I have found over the years that some things I could take back. For some reason, I can take back honey. I don't abuse that. Some people can't. The, I have two bottom lines. So one is no sugar. No sugar. Now, do, when I go out and I have barbecued chicken, do I know that sugar is second on that ingredient list? Yes. Do I ask the chef for that ingredient? No, I have the barbecued chicken. So when I am complete control of my food, that's what I do. The other thing is that it, my other bottom line is honesty and my abstinence. And the reason why that's so important is because I've had some really killer meals, you guys, big meals, big ones where I'm going, uh, <laughs> is that abstinence, you know? And so my bottom line is I tell you about it. I tell you as soon as I can. I tell my sponsor as soon as I can. I write about it. And then you can decide if that's your definition of abstinence. You can make your own judgment, and that's fine. God bless you. But I keep going. I keep going forward because my experience, the first time I did that, I had a killer huge meal. Actually, I had a fourth meal when I was, at that time, I was having three meals a day. And I had a fourth meal. It was one year into doing that with Catherine. And I was sobbing. And I called her and I said I had to start over. And she said, write about it and then meet me before the meeting. And I was sobbing. And I prayed about it. And I wrote, read my, my writing to her. And then she looked me in the eye and she said, if you start over today, can you guarantee me we won't be here in a year on this same wall reading another starting over? And I said, no. And she said, then you keep going. You just tell people. You just tell everyone you know. There's no secrets. It's, I'm as sick as I am secret. Um, there was one more thing about that which just flew out of my brain, so I'll keep going. So, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. On an intellectual level, I'm not sure I believe in God, but I feel like here's my life. I'm in the center uh, on some cement, and if I take a big piece of sidewalk chalk and I draw a circle, 
and I pretend that there's a God and I'm inside that circle, my life works better. It just does. It's more fun. I'm more relaxed. I feel taken care of. So I choose to just go with that, that vision. Um, at one point, there was a guy in Clark that named Clark in program, and he told me that my husband was too important to me and that God needed to be more important than my husband, and he was right. So I bought a ring, which I call my God ring. And that, I have my wedding ring and I have my God ring. And I, I need for God to be as important. And God, who knows what God is? It could be a guy, it could be a girl, it could be some floating, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's that there is something spiritual above and beyond what I am. Also, I've heard other people talk about how are they reminded of God. One woman said, I think it was in Lifeline, she said that those little bumps that divide um, on the street when you're driving, those little bumpy things, at least in America we have them, um, she said every time she sees a bump, she, she tells herself to remember God. And there are a lot of them in Los Angeles. So <laughs> God out every place. Um, and so God is in my life today in a way that I could never have believed. I let go. I turn it over. Sometimes I forget. And usually it's when I'm really backed up against the wall. Um, I made a search. Okay, made a decision to remember, Okay, made a searching for a fearless moral inventory of ourselves. I've done that several times, and I take daily inventories and I send them by email to my sponsor. And it's really, you know, what a blog is. You're on the internet and you write a, a diary. Well, I have a blog, but she's my only audience. You know, I just write everything. I spill everything, and she's this incredibly wonderful woman who has patience and will read a lot. You know. Um, and so the last thing I want. Okay, so that was the fourth step and the tenth step, and I have to wrap it up now. Two more minutes. Two more minutes. Okay. Um, the prayer and meditation. Remember about breathing. Take another breath. It's hard for me to make time for meditation in my life. And what I found, one of my teachers said that meditation is not a quiet state. It's a very active state. And it's best to do it after exercise. So what I've learned to do is I exercise three or four times a week. And in my gym, right after exercise, I find a little room. I, I sneak into a room that no one uses, a yoga room. They, no one knows this. And I, I meditate. I'm all sweaty, and I just finished, and I feel so virtuous. And I, and I, just, I meditate. I, I, and that room is very quiet, because if I go home, there's noises on the street, and there's the phone, and there's my dog and my cat, and they get... They want to sit in my lap, and this room is my spiritual place. And that really works for me, and it keeps me... The things that pop into my head in meditation when you're trying to keep thoughts away have been very useful. The re- the, 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 I, for those of you who are on the tape, I am using a name that's not my own. And the reason why is because I was afraid I was going to talk about my sister, but obviously I haven't talked about my sister at all, have I? But I have two more minutes, so I might as well use it because, hey, you don't know my real name, right? <laughs> Um, um, my sister is this incredibly wonderful person who has scared me over the years. Um, she has a great well of anger, untapped anger, and every once in a while it comes popping out and it scares the hell out of me. And uh, several years ago something came up about her daughter and me and, her, and my sister, and we basically never wanted to talk to each other again. It was so frightening because a sister is someone you're supposed to have in your life and someone, you're, for me, that you would have forever beyond your parents' lives. 
And actually, it was interesting because at that point, I was a kind of, um, I was about 145 pounds, and I was in menopause, and I was beginning to gain weight, and I was feeling a little very icky about myself, and I was doing a lot of dulling of my senses. And I just thought, fine. You know how we used to eat at her people? I will not eat at her. <laughs> and I just thought, I'm going to weigh and measure like I used to. Because I want to get to the bottom of the ceiling, figure this out. And because, honestly, I needed a distraction. I was so unhappy. And I thought, I remember once listening to a guy, an alcoholic at AA, and he said, sometimes you just got to keep your mind busy. You know, put it up and down the flagpole for a while. Mm-hmm. And that was useful to me to, to do that. So my sister and I, a miracle has come into our life. And I'll just close on this note. I had a therapist for 12 years who was the most incredible therapist I've ever had. And she moved. Where did she move? To the little tiny town where my sister lives. And because of that, my sister and I and her therapist and my therapist have had five sessions together over the last two years. And I just feel chills when I say this. It has been the most incredible opening between us, the honesty and opening. And I could not have done it had not been for all the work I did with this program. So... um, Thank you, Roseanne, for for this program, and thank you, everybody in this room, because we're all trying, you know. The people outside, they may have given up, but we are trying, and I don't think you can ask for anything more. Thank you.